Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaHealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Born to be Breastfed with your host, Marie Biancuso. Our program aims to help you bust through the breastfeeding myths and ensure you and your baby enjoy the breastfeeding journey. Over the next hour, we'll help you figure out how to overcome the obstacles you might encounter and how to incorporate breastfeeding into your busy life. Now, here is your host, Marie Biancuso. Hello to everyone. I'm Marie Biancuso, and I'm your host for Born to be Breastfed. Thank you for joining me. We have a really great show coming up today. I'm looking forward to it, and uh, I hope you are too. Joining us today is my very special guest, Dr. Maryam Labak, and we're going to talk about a number of things as related to breastfeeding as a public health priority for the nation. As many of you know, or <clears throat> perhaps I can help you to become a little more familiar with Dr. Labak's work. She has been promoting breastfeeding for many, many years and in many countries and in many different avenues that many of us might not think about. She certainly is someone who I think can contribute a lot to our understanding of how breastfeeding is really more than just the baby latching on, that she has been involved in a number of health care initiatives, which have been extremely important in breastfeeding promotion, certainly in the U.S. and abroad as well. So, um, hello, Miriam. Can you, uh, I, I'm hoping you're there and ready to go t- with us today. I certainly am, Marie. I, I, I have, I'm still thinking about those many, many, many years you were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to make you sound old, Miriam, but I do want to say that the first time that I met you was actually before I went to work at Georgetown, and you might not remember that. But I very much remember that I had to give a lecture on something. And at the time, I was working with Dr. Ruth Lawrence, and she said, well, you know, the the expert is right there at Georgetown University. Next time you're in D.C., just go in and talk with her. And I remember thinking, well, how am I going to ask this leading expert if I can just barge into her office? <laughs> but indeed, I did. And you were very gracious and really helped me to gain some perspectives about breastfeeding that I don't think I would have otherwise had. And so I hope maybe you can do that for all of us today. It would be my pleasure. I'd like to start with a little bit on the um, the SACIM, S-A-C-I-M. It's the Secretary's Advisory Committee on Infant Mortality. And I know that there are many listeners who might not have heard of the SACIM. Can you just tell us a little bit about what the group does? Sure. Secretary of Health Sibelius 
has called SACM back into action after a few years of quiescence, if you will. Uh-huh. And her, her task to us really was to help her think through how to reduce infant mortality in the United States. And the reason that is an issue is because, unfortunately, infant mortality rates in the United States are much higher than those of Europe. Uh, according to different counts, we are anywhere from 36th to 50th in the world in terms of infant mortality. So she called together a group that I'm very honored to be part of, uh, of people from public health, from clinical medicine, just to talk about what's needed to reduce infant mortality in the United States. And of course, we have the issues of racial inequity, and we have issues of premature birth. But this time, for the first time, They've also given full recognition to the importance of breastfeeding to reduce infant mortality, or in other words, to keep children alive. Yes. And uh, to the point that we actually have a full appendix dedicated to what every different governmental organization could do to support breastfeeding in the paper that we've delivered to the secretary for her consideration. Wow. Uh, I'm... I mean, I'm sitting here and I'm thinking that I know a little bit about this organization. And just a while ago, I can't remember where I was, giving a lecture where I showed that statistic from the Centers for Disease Control, where I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that the United States ranked 35th in infant mortality. Is that about right? Yes, that's one of the calculations, but some of the calculations say we rank even lower. Really? Yes. And I would guess that that has to do with how the statistics are actually uh, generated. Can you explain that a little? Yes. Uh, The prematurity is a very special issue in the United States. We are uh, blessed with more premature births than most countries. We do a much better job than many countries at keeping prematures alive. So although they are a major contributor to our infant mortality rate, We are doing pretty well with premature survival. We're not doing as well as many other countries in terms of the survival of the full terms. So this is, I think, the reason that uh, we have this new emphasis on immunization, the standard things, immunization, child spacing, and breastfeeding, as well as more attention to supporting the mother and the continuum of care throughout the reproductive health cycle. So although the committee is called infant mortality, the emphases have been very much on the public health focus of helping the mother, helping the mother, and helping the mother (laughs) in in her prenatal period, in the uh, period of labor and delivery, and in the postpartum period, as well as preconception. And by helping her, there's a lot of education, there's lots of recognition of the social and racial inequities that we have. And this group, who I, I, as I said, I feel quite honored to be a part of, is trying to address these issues in a practical manner. Now, Miriam, I know that, in the, as I recall, the SACM was started in 1991. Is that correct or about correct? I know that it had a period of quiescence before uh-huh. Dr. Sibelius chose to uh, rebirth it, if you will. So, yes, no pun intended. Uh, tell me this, then. Be, when it was in 1991 when it started, was breastfeeding part of the dialogue, do you know? It was not. Uh-huh. And so it sounds like in the more recent, uh, I'll use the word resurrection of of this committee, it seems as though somehow they've recognized that breastfeeding is perhaps pivotal to infant survival. Would that be true? I, 
I think, I, I really don't know, but I have to assume that since they included me in the group, uh-huh. that there is recognition that they had to strengthen the uh, breastfeeding elements. But I am happy to say I'm not speaking alone at our meetings. There are oh, several people in the group who are definitely also speaking this language. There is no question breastfeeding reduces all of the major causes of infant mortality. It reduces SIDS, exclusive breastfeeding reduces SIDS deaths. It reduces for the prematures, it increases survival, the use of human milk. Also, it reduces necrotizing enterocolitis, known as NEC. It also reduces um, hospitalization for respiratory diseases, which uh, respiratory diseases in infancy are a major cause of death. So since breastfeeding reduces premature deaths, it reduces neck, it reduces respiratory illness and um, mortality that's related to it, and reduces the risk of SIDS, clearly it can have a measurable impact on infant mortality. Oh, I love those words, immeasurable impact. (laughs) Uh, It just seems as though when I was a young nurse, breastfeeding was sort of like, oh, well, you could breastfeed or you could bottle feed. It's all pretty much the same. And then we often had doctors who would tell mothers, well, it's up to you. Well, that's very difficult because unless – unless, first of all, they have the information, and secondly, unless they have the support, then they really, they don't go forward with it. And it sounds like that has been, as you said, part of that theme of the SACOM is about the mother, about the mother, about the mother. It's also recognized the importance of the 10 steps to successful breastfeeding oh, yes. in the yes. hospital. Yes. And these, these 10 steps, if you look at them, it's simple quality of care. And yet we know that women who deliver in hospitals that practice the 10 steps are much more likely to achieve their own breastfeeding intention. There's been a couple very good studies that have highlighted that. Yes, and I'm familiar with those studies, but it turns out that just, oh, I'm thinking two or three weeks ago, I was doing training at a hospital in the Midwest, and I thought it was very interesting that one of the nurses said, because, of course, they're doing the 10 steps, she said something like, "When, since we've implemented these 10 steps, we have mothers with less engorgement and greater uh, breastfeeding success and so forth and so on. And I remember standing there and saying, wow. So when we do it the way that we're really supposed to do it, it really works. It's true. And, you know, we, we, we recently published a study. We've been looking uh, at the initiation of the 10 steps in 10 hospitals here in North Carolina. And we kind of divided them up and did a little research to see what the impact was. And uh, this is not published yet, so this is a scoop. Oh, we, <laughs> but, we want the scoop. <laughs> Apparently, you know, it's not so much changing health workers' knowledge and attitudes, but it comes down to simple quality in their practices. And when more of the practices are initiated, more women succeed with breastfeeding. So we simply must stop getting in the way of women breastfeeding. I think that the take-home message to me is if we stay out of the way and we do the supportive practices, it's a huge help to moms. Now, the issue is, of course, once they get home and the craziness of the American life, uh, it's very hard. I have the greatest respect for any woman in the United States who succeeds with breastfeeding against all the barriers we throw out to her. And Miriam, funny that you should mention that because 
when I said that I wanted to do this show, that was one of my great motivators is that I said it, it has to be more than just that beginning, that initiation of breastfeeding. It has to be helping to, as C. Everett Coop said many, many years ago in 1984, oh, there's my many, many years part, but anyway, uh, <laughs> he did. He said we must reduce the barriers that keep women from initiating or continuing breastfeeding. And I look at that and I realize that we've done a lot to reduce those barriers, but we still do have those barriers. And I was also thinking a minute ago something that you said about our staying out of the way. I believe that I read this some years ago in Dione Young's book. And if you, maybe if our listeners remember that, I believe that Dione's book came out in about 1990, 91, somewhere around in there. And one of the things that she pointed out was the word obstetric comes from the Latin obstet which means to stand by. It does not mean to stand in the way. And so that's where I think that we really need to focus, as you said, on on not getting in the way and really allowing the mother and the baby to do what you know this whole show is dedicated to, which is really understanding and respecting that babies are born, are born to be breastfed. This has been such an enlightening segment for me, especially with what you've told us about infant mortality. We're about to go to the break, and I would just like to say that, again, this is more than just the mother and the baby. This is really about all that is going on in the nation and elsewhere. When we come back, I'd like you to talk to us just a little bit about the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. I'm Marie Biancuto. With Born to be Breastfed, I'm with Dr. Miriam LeBach, and we will take just a short break, and then we'll come back. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Nine different energy systems make up the energy body. Energy is all around us and connects us. Energy exerts a major control over our biology and is a big reason why you should be tuning in to energy medicine and optimal health with your host, Dr. Ann Deatley. We'll explore energy balance techniques, tips, and patterns to keep your flow of energy optimal to maintain maximal health. By adopting these techniques, you will keep your energy body and physical body in harmony. Listen for Energy Medicine and Optimal Health, Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Tune in every Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health & Wellness channel for Eat Well to Live Well with Kelly Hill. Kelly covers our relationship with food and teaches us how easy eating well and living well can be taking us on a weekly food journey, guiding us to a more rich and vibrant life. So tune in every Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel for Eat Well to Live Well with Kelly Hill. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to Born to be Breastfed. 
To reach Marie Biancuso or her guest on today's program, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to radio at borntobebreastfed.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. Today, I have as my guest Dr. Miriam Labach. We just got back from the break, and before break, we were talking about breastfeeding really as something that is a national health priority. Dr. Labach was helping us to understand how one of the things that has been so important is that the mortality rate here of, of infant mortality rate here in the United States is actually much worse than what many of us would think. I was saying that the last figure that I had read was that we ranked 35th in the world, and she was explaining that it might actually even be worse than that. Again, as you know, the way that statistics are put together, it sometimes is is not always an exactly accurate science. And so we talked a little bit about that, and then what I would like to help you to do is to understand that the initiative that she was talking about, which was the SACM, has is just really just one of many, many uh, initiatives or directives or committees that she has been involved in. I know that another one that has been very influential here in the United States is the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine, that is the ABM. And I, I really have to say that in my opinion, the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine is one of the most important resources that was ever developed for breastfeeding promotion here in the U.S. If we get some time, maybe I can ask you to give us a brief history of the ABM, but in case we don't get that far, could you just briefly address what the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine is about? Uh, what's its mission, who are its members, and what are its main outputs? Sure. Um we formed the academy in response to a call from lactation consultants to do something about those doctors. <laughs> and so it's a, it's a worldwide organization of physicians who are, all of us, dedicated to the promotion, protection, and support of breastfeeding and human lactation. It's, I think we're about 20 years old now. I, I, I hate to admit how long it's been. I would say so. But yes. it, uh, it, we've had an annual meeting since the beginning. One mm -hmm. of our... We have two things. If there's any physicians online, I just wanted to tell you, if you join, you are automatically in a listserv such that you can share ah. your concerns about your patients with other physicians confidentially, and you can get the answers from the experts. But what is open to everyone are our protocols, which are online. If you go to www.bfmed.org, we have protocols for the clinical treatment and addressing problems that have often been misaddressed, if you will, yes. uh, by the general uh, healthcare population and includes issues such as mastitis, model hospital policy, milk storage, galactagogues, and so on. There's actually oh, about 25 protocols or more yes. and three statements uh, from the organization. We also are the home of Breastfeeding Medicine, which is a journal uh, that publishes mostly articles of interest to physicians worldwide, 
but a lot that's of interest to just about everybody who's interested in the topic of breastfeeding. Honestly, Miriam, I will tell you that breastfeeding medicine, and I believe that it originated in 2006, and and just to show you that I've got a few gray hairs here, I also have my copies of, remember when it was uh, ABM News and Views? Yes. Uh, I still have those actually in my office, and I thought it was a great move when they went to breastfeeding medicine. I will tell you that unquestionably that journal is always, always at the top of my pile. I subscribe, I, really, I subscribe to a pile of journals and I certainly read several others, but it's always at the top of my pile. Well, one of the things I would wonder, and I don't know if you know the answer to this, but how does that journal get such high quality submissions? Do they uh, solicit the submissions or is it completely voluntary or, or what, you know? It, you know, the organization actually has been around since 1993, and uh, over the years, uh, we've attracted membership that includes a lot of the researchers who you might want to hear from. So even amongst the membership, we have quite a few people who submit articles um, of interest. And then, of course, as an international organization, everybody uses their networks to encourage submissions. There's really only three major journals of lactation right now um, and one coming along. And breastfeeding medicine, of course, is the one that um, is edited. What else can I say? It's edited by Ruth Lawrence. And therefore, <laughs> yes. right there, has yes. a leg up and is of interest yes. to people to submit articles. Yes. When I think about how many of her articles I've read over the years, uh, and, and you know, she's always been my hero. I had the great privilege of working with her for many years. I would say I miss her every day, but that's a topic for another day. Uh, l- let me ask you this. Uh, I know that some people really think of the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine site, which you just gave the link for, the URL, uh, bfmed.org. I know that many people think of that as being something that just doctors would go to or maybe just other healthcare professionals. But honestly, I think it's a really great resource for parents as well, because very often parents will ask me, about, oh, well, my doctor told me this, and I'm thinking, oh, well, that's baloney. Uh, but I think that it it certainly gives a great resource for parents to have really good, solid ammunition to support breast, best breastfeeding practices. Uh, am I overstating the case? Do you think that's true? No, I, I agree. I, that's why I mentioned the protocols. They, yes. They're, they're there, you know, sometimes for a parent to share with their own physician for them to consider. It's unfortunate that not every physician in the world knows about the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. So I think it is helpful for as many people as possible to know to bring it to the attention of physicians and other health workers. Miriam, I'll take my commission any time here. (laughs) (laughs) I'll tell you why, because when I have physicians who come to my course, I always try to make an effort to talk to them at the break and talk to them about the ABM and tell them how important it is because I think it's really important that they connect to people such as yourself or Dr. Lawrence or Dr. Chandler or any of the truly – I I shouldn't even be naming names because all of you are such great breastfeeding giants. And so that's really a a tremendously important – organization for physicians to belong to. Uh, 
L- let me move to something that is sort of the opposite of breastfeeding. I know we won't have time to cover all of this before the break, but can you just talk for a little bit about infant formula risks and infant formula advertising? You know, when we talk about breastfeeding as a public health priority, it seems to me that there are really like two things going on there. First, it's about the public and and it's about health. So that leads me to think about the advertising that the public is exposed to and especially the advertising of infant formula. I know you've been very active in trying to help people to become aware of the risks of infant formula. For example, I know you were a co-author on an article that was published in Birth a while ago. I believe that title was, What are the Risks Associated with Formula? And yet, honestly, I so often interact with parents who seem to think that formula, eh, you know, it's pretty much just as good as breastfeeding. Maybe, Maybe not quite as good as breastfeeding, but almost. And so that tells me that the advertising of infant formula is is very powerful. Do you think that advertising of formula really influences what mothers do with breastfeeding or not breastfeeding? Or do you think they're going to make up their own minds and the advertising really doesn't make a difference? How, well, uh, yeah, what can you say about that? Well, I can say advertising works or people wouldn't be spending the big bucks. <laughs> There's no question about it. And those who are in advertising are very skilled. The uh, infant formula industry is a multiple tens of billions of dollar industry, and they they support themselves. They have to earn money for their stakeholders, and they use every possible way to get around the international code of marketing, which asks them to not do um, misleading advertising. It, they're not alone. I mean, a lot of advertising is somewhat um, misleading. But what the formula companies have done is they've created a lifelong barrage, if you will, of, of support for formula, such as infant baby bottles, you know, with yes. their dolls and so on. Our study found uh, four major problems that have emerged um, related to women's perception of formula. The first is that when they read these ads, they get very confused about the superiority of human milk. I, I have to mention, in the studies of pediatricians, they too are confused. In the last study, about 45% of pediatricians weren't so sure that there was superiority of human mm, milk, even yes. though they said they supported it. The second thing that came out of these, this research is that formula is seen as a solution to every baby crying problem. Fussy baby, Use formula. Crying baby? Use, use formula. formula, yes. So it, it really is sold as anything going wrong, we can fix it. Then the next thing that came out is that it breeds an expectation of failure. Women read these ads and they say, well, you know, GHA, that's in the formula. Do I have any of that? Yes. And the fact of the matter, of course, moms, of course. Of course have it. Have it. <laughs> yes. And then the final major finding was that when these messages come from healthcare workers, they have even a greater impact. And unfortunately, these messages do come from healthcare workers. Yes. Uh, the Academy of uh, Pediatrics in our own country has a large support from the formula industry for its workings. Uh, until physicians and healthcare workers separate themselves 
from this very um, ubiquitous advertising, will continue to have this kind of confusion where women, even if they have decided to breastfeed, when they see their doctor handing it out, when they see these ads that say it has a special ingredient, begin to doubt themselves. And the great guru, if you will, of breastfeeding, Dr. Dick Shelliff, used to say oh, yes. that breastfeeding is a confidence game. Oh, yes. Uh, it's yes. a play on words, but he yes. really meant that uh, if a mom's confident, she can overcome the problems. But if she's lost confidence... All bets are off. I believe that Derek Jelliff said that in 1971. Now, I'm not good at math, but I think that was 40 years ago. And more than 40 years ago, those words still apply. And you're right, that undermining of the confidence is such a huge piece. I'd like to come back and talk a little bit more about that because there were a couple of things that you said there that I'd like to pursue. We do need to take a short break. And for all of you who might be joining us now, I'm Marie Biancuzzo with Born to be Breastfed, and my very special guest today is Dr. Miriam Labak. I hope that you will return because in the next segment we're going to talk just a little bit more about the uh, advertising of formula and the risks of formula. So we'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Make the most of your beautiful life. Listen to Ageless Living with Dr. Tong Lee and co-host Kurt Wilhelm to gain tips on how to live healthier and happier, alleviate suffering, prevent disease, become more beautiful in body, mind, and fashion, and find peace, balance, and success in your life. Are you aware that every 3,500 calories that you eat above what you burn will put a pound of fat on your body? And running one mile only burns 200 calories? So portion size does matter, and migraines do have a cure. What is it? You'll have to tune in Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health & Wellness Channel. Take charge of your fitness and take charge of your healthy life. Listen for Be Fit for Life with your host, Chad Austin. Think back over the past week, the past month, the past years. Are you like a lot of other people, too busy with the kids, work, travel, social calendars, business calendars, the day, the night, this and that? Make the decision to be healthier. Just do it. Chad Austin has made a living from motivating people to stop excuses and make fitness a priority in their lives. Tune in every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to Born to be Breastfed. To reach Marie Biancuso or her guest on today's program, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. 
You may also send an email to radio at borntobebreastfed.com. Now, back to the show. We are returning now with Dr. Miriam Labak. We just got through with a segment where she talked with us about the advertising of infant formula and how healthcare providers are actually unknowingly sometimes being that person who advertises formula. And of course, that really does have an impact on how women perceive formula. And she ended by reminding us that it can be a real downer for the woman if she thinks that she has to go to formula because she's somehow unable to to breastfeed. And we're, we were reminded about that great quote from Dr. Jelliff in the early 70s where he said that breastfeeding is indeed a confidence game. And so I'd like to pick up with talking about the risks of infant formula because so often what I find is, and honestly, I know this sounds silly, but I just feel... I feel silly talking about the benefits of breastfeeding because that, to me, means that breastfeeding is being compared to something else, whereas I would like to set breastfeeding as the standard and talk about the risks of infant formula. So, Dr. Labak, could you enlighten us a little bit about that, please? I can share with you my own experience. I think it's tremendously important for healthcare professionals to work from a breastfeeding norm and then compare anything else to the breastfeeding norm. Unfortunately, the the vast, vast, vast majority of the research out there does the opposite. It starts with a formula norm and then compares. And with one of my graduate students, we went through the research and had to flip all the formulas and flip all those, you know, relative risks and such to figure out how we can state if you will, the risk of formula compared to exclusive breastfeeding. And that is in the article that you mentioned earlier. Excuse me. But one of the bigger concerns is the assumption that any formula has no, you know, just a little bit of formula doesn't do any harm. Uh And uh, we know today, for some reason, breastfed infants in the hospital, nearly 25% of them are receiving some formula. This is completely illogical. And yet, we're showing that exposure that healthcare workers are giving formula to breastfeeding women. Absolutely. The problem is, is even a little bit of formula has a profound excuse me, impact on the infant's gut. Uh, we know now more about epigenetics, and any foreign protein, cow's milk uh, protein, which is what's in formula, can change how genes are expressed in the infant's intestines. Now, that's not nothing. Right. That is profound, uh, let alone the other genes that may change throughout the body. So we want to avoid any formula that's not necessary as a health intervention. I think that one of the things I have difficulty with is that mothers think that if it's just a little bit, that it doesn't matter. And I don't really have a great comeback for that. I think that you've helped me a little bit. I would like to think that maybe you've helped some others. Is is there anything else that you can help us with in terms of a sound bite to really explain that, you know, not to sound overly dramatic, but you wouldn't give your kid just a little arsenic either. I mean, <laughs> you know, that that's sort of overly dramatic, but people don't understand. Dr. Ruth Lawrence explained to me years ago 
that you're giving the baby this foreign substance at a time when he is least able to deal with it? Well, I think uh, although we had go through all the effort to explain that to health professionals, that we have to talk from a breastfeeding norm and talk about the risks of formula use, the general population is not ready to hear that yet. And when you're talking to a patient, if you begin to talk that way, you can lose them. That's true. Remember, they live in a society that has all that advertising for formula. So I think it's extremely important to meet people where they are when you're discussing the issue. And I would agree with that, too. And I try not to come off as somebody who's too radical. I think that I probably am. (laughs) I don't necessarily want to come off that way because, as you say, you really do need to, to meet people where they're at. When I think about the risks of infant formula, one of the things that I also think about is the Innocenti Declaration. And honestly, no joke, when I think about the Innocenti Declaration, the first thing that comes to my mind is Miriam. I, I, I know that you were just extremely influential with this. Can you tell us a little bit about how that all came down? I know that it was in Italy. I know that it was named after, apparently, the Innocenti Hotel. But in, is <laughs> it, it true? Is, well, there's an Innocenti Center, center in ah. Italy. And Innocenti, in Ita- Innocenti in Italian, apparently means orphans. Yes. And we held the meeting in 2005, August 1st and 2nd, which, by the way, is why World Breastfeeding Day is always on August 1st and 2nd. Right. Um, The meeting came about in a very unusual way. Whenever anybody tells me they know how to make policy happen, I just laugh out loud because (laughs) we had no idea. There were uh, just a handful of us who were technical people from four different organizations, from U.S. Agency for International Development, from the Swedish aid organization Uh from WHO and UNICEF. And we just knew each other because we were all technical people. So how many were there? It was just four originally, four or five. Uh, Well, actually six or seven if you, one or two from each agency. Okay. And uh, we just got together when we can and we decided we had to do something about this to convince our agencies to do more. We called ourselves the Ad hoc IGAB, Interagency Group for Action on Breastfeeding. And we began meeting in the mid 80s and, uh, et cetera, et cetera. We had some meetings. We defined breastfeeding for the first time. We were the first group to look in depth at working women as a social issue. And we decided to culminate, thanks to WHO and UNICEF, with a meeting at WHO on the technical aspects and a meeting at, by, at UNICEF and at and by UNICEF in terms of the uh, policy and program aspects. So following the WHO meeting, which led to a very nice book that people don't tend to remember very well these days on the technical basis for breastfeeding, we had the meeting at Innocenti, and in the Innocenti Center, on the wall, it was covered with, it's a 15th century building, and 16th, long time ago. Wow. <laughs> and the walls were covered with murals okay. of women breastfeeding, because apparently these weren't really orphans. They were children of women of the night, if you will, uh. and since they couldn't take care of their children, they left them at the orphanage. Oh, and wow. one very wise priest decided to bring these women in and let them breastfeed the kids so the kids would survive. What they found is when they paid these women to breastfeed the children, a few things happened. One is that the children began to survive. 
two is that the women didn't have to work at hard, as hard at night because they had some income and they could feed their other children. Right, right. And three, they didn't get pregnant. Yes. And now I know I'm getting onto a topic that comes later. But let's come back. <laughs> what okay. happened at the Innocenti Declaration meeting is uh, basically 30 countries were in attendance and all of them signed on. By 1995, all of them would have national breastfeeding governmental units. All of them would have every hospital practicing those 10 steps we talked about. Yes. All of them would have legalized or made legislation to support the code of marketing that would stop this false and misleading advertising. And all of them would have paid maternity leave. Excuse me a second. Sure. Yeah, well, you, you so, may need to take a sip of water. That one of the countries that signed on to that was the United States. Uh-huh. So I asked some people later on, you know, this was all supposed to happen by 1995. You might notice that none of those have happened in the United States. So I, I wrote a letter, and I said, you know, what goes? We signed on. And I received a response back that it was a hortatory signature. What in the world does that mean? Exactly. I'm just assuming that I, I didn't know what it meant. So I went to the Reliable Dictionary. This was before Wikipedia. <laughs> and uh, the dictionary, apparently it's when you're caught up by the excitement of the moment. Oh, please. Yes. Well, in any case, so the, but the United States did sign it, and we can hold our own country's feet to the fire. And yes. I must say, our last Surgeon General was... Wonderful. Yes. In putting out the Surgeon General's blue, um, excuse me, call to action. Call to action, yes. To support breastfeeding. That was 2011. Uh huh. And it, it's in January uh, 2011. And that was the first time that the United States stepped onto the international stage and truly supported the Innocenti Declaration. I have to say, that is one of the more fascinating study, or, or stories that I've heard in quite a while. I, I knew the four points of the Innocenti that you just mentioned, but I really had no idea about that whole business about the women of the night and the decor of oh, this. This is really pretty incredible. I'd also, I have to mention uh, Mr. Grant, who was a head oh, of yes. UNICEF at the time, because if it yes. weren't for him, none of this would have happened. He actually was looking for a way to support breastfeeding as a human right. Uh, this was just after the Declaration of the Rights of the Child, yes. Convention on the Rights of the Child. And so he thought, wow. Here we go. Here we so go. He, he, he backed it up all the way. It all it all seemed to fit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, truly, I, I just have to tell you that is one of the best stories that I've ever heard. And you are right. People also will ask me, "Well, how did we get to the uh, World Breastfeeding Week being August first? And then, I, of course, I have to explain about the Innocenti and so forth. So that's a really great story. It has been so fascinating to listen to these public health initiatives. And we do have some more ground to cover. For those of you who can, I would really encourage you to come back for our next segment. As you may or may not know, Dr. Labak is one of the world's leading experts on lactational amenorrhea and has been accredited uh, on that uh, totally uh, important event, or I, event is really not the word, right word, and I will come back and let her explain. But right now, uh, we need to take a break. So stay with us. We will come back with a segment where we will talk substantially about lactational amenorrhea, and I have some questions from uh, some of our listeners who have raised questions about this. So to break we go. See you soon.
your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health & Wellness. If you have a loved one that is undergoing treatment for substance abuse or mental illness, you owe it to them and yourself to tune in to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. This compassionate and educational talk show will help you help those that you love by better understanding their condition and their personal recovery process. Tune in every Monday at 12 noon Pacific time to One Hour at a Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Recovery begins this hour. Can Chinese medicine and Western medicine go hand-in-hand when you are seeking treatment or a path to better health? Absolutely. Listen each week for Sticking to the Point, Natural Medicine Radio with host Cheryl Hongzermeyer. We'll explain Chinese medicine, including acupuncture, in easy-to-learn ways. We'll even spotlight certain conditions that don't have any diagnosis in the field of Western medicine. Be sure to tune in every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. You read about it in health news every day. Cancer rates are going up. Obesity in the U.S. is on the rise. Heart disease and diabetes are top killers every year. We can follow the advice of our doctor, but cravings persist. Weight goes up and energy is still down. It doesn't have to be like this. Tune in for Body Balance Talk with Lucy Hewitt and her guest experts. You'll learn how you can work with your body to feel better and look better, too. Body Balance Talk airs live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Born to be Breastfed. To reach Marie Biancuso or her guest on today's program, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to radio at borntobebreastfed.com. Now, back to the show. Thank you, everyone. Uh, Welcome back to Born to be Breastfed. Today we have with us as our guest, Dr. Maryam Labak. Dr. Labak has been talking with us about a number of public health initiatives. We just got through talking about the Innocenti Declaration, and I promised that when we came back, we would talk about lactational amenorrhea. Now, when I teach courses on breastfeeding and lactation, I find that most of the audience really doesn't know much about lactational amenorrhea at all. And worse still, I find that many people actually think they know something about it, but they actually know very little about it, and they aren't necessarily interested in knowing any more. But I think the lactational amenorrhea method, or LAM, L-A-M, LAM, is a very exciting concept, especially for any woman or any couple who is truly committed to using natural foods, natural methods, natural anything. So can you define for us the lactational amenorrhea method? Sure. I, it, it has a long and dark history, but back at a, the time that we were developing the Innocenti Conference, which, um, by the way, I think I misspoke. It was actually 1990. In 2005, we had the follow-up conference. Oh, but yes. Around that time, I was very interested in breastfeeding primarily 
because of its impact on fertility. I had been working at USAID in, in the population division, and I thought, oh, what a lovely marriage if we <laughs> could somehow get population people supporting breastfeeding and breastfeeding people supporting family planning. Oh, here we go. So I actually went back to school at that point to study how we might turn the natural infertility that comes with lactational amenorrhea, the period uh, during lactation before your menses return, uh, and how we might be able to use that possibly as a method of family planning. So I went back to Hopkins and I did doctoral work um, with Ron Gray, and he allowed me to go off and uh, pursue this particular interest. Um, before I left USAID, I had also encouraged my colleagues at FHI, Kathy Kennedy in particular, uh-huh. uh, to do some work, uh, some research on the issue as well. So a few years later, we were able to come together and figure out at a wonderful conference at Bellagio, if you put all of our research together, you could actually define three criteria under which women would not tend to get pregnant. And they were full breast, excuse me, I should start with amenorrhea, which means no menses. No menses, Uh uh-huh. Full breastfeeding or nearly full breastfeeding. And then up to six months, because after six months, you do want to encourage complementary food. After six months, when the baby is six months old. That's correct. Yes. Uh-huh. And so with those three conditions, menses have not returned, full or nearly full breastfeeding, and before you add complementary foods or six months, a woman would be, according to all of our scientific data, only at a 1% to 2% risk of pregnancy. So that's wonderful, and all of we scientists pat each other's on the back, and we were all happy with ourselves, and then I felt we had to actually test it. Sure. So we did our first trial of lamb in Chile, excuse me, and uh, held our breath. Yes, yes. (laughs) To see what actually happened with the method in use. And what happened in Chile, and in many studies subsequent to that, is that we had less than one-half of 1% pregnancy rate with the use of this method. That is so phenomenal. And every time that I tell people those kinds of statistics as related to the efficacy, they always kind of come back at me with, oh, well, yeah, but it didn't work for me or it didn't work for my friend or blah, blah, blah. And then I have to go back and talk about full breastfeeding or nearly full breastfeeding. And uh, for instance, mothers will often ask, well, what about if the baby is using a pacifier? Does that count? The pacifier shouldn't make any difference. Here is a, a real distinct difference in how some people look at breastfeeding. Some people look at it as nutrition. Other people look at it as a women's issue. But to truly understand breastfeeding, you have to look at it as the dyad, the two people. Oh, yes, And true. the baby might use a pacifier, but it's that fact that it's getting all its nutrition from the mother's breast, that it stimulates the breast, the breast stimulates the hypothalamus, which stimulates the et cetera, et cetera, the, and so on, the pituitary. So all of that then impacts on the ovary. So it's this whole maternal physiology from the baby suckling that does it. Now, I find also every time I talk about it, somebody will stand up and say, well, I did it. But usually what they forget is the amenorrhea. <clears throat> oh, even if you're uh-huh. fully breastfeeding, <clears throat> once your menses return, right. all bets are off. All bets are and, off. And even if you're fully breastfeeding, once you know, once your menses return, all bets are off. So the lactational amenorrhea method as tested was only good for up to 
six months, depending on how long the mother was amenorrheic and how long she uh, fully breastfed. So let me ask you this. What about these moms that are, and I have several questions that I want to cover in the next three minutes here. Tell, tell me this. Uh, what about the moms that are pumping? Many people ask me, well, does that really count? Well, in, in our, or frankly, we haven't studied it, but the one okay. study that did look at it, um, it was efficacious, but not at the level women would like it to be. Uh-huh. It was only about 95% effective. So all I can say is it may have some impact, but I think it's only fair to tell women it's, it loses efficacy when it's not mother and baby together, together. four hours a day. Loses efficacy. I, I think that's a really good one. And let me ask you this one, too, because sometimes it, it's possible, it, it's I would say more than possible for a woman to have an ovulation before the actual visible menses. How can you explain that? I always really have a hard time explaining, uh, well, um, 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 so what should my response be? In cycling women, ovulation always precedes menses. In partially breastfeeding women, ovulation precedes menses. In fully lactating women, the ovulation that precedes the menses is not adequate for fertility. Ah. For fertilization. Ah, okay. So it, you get some uh, ovarian activity, but you don't get a healthy ovulation if you're fully breastfeeding. Well, that's the best explanation I've ever heard of that, and I honestly really didn't know that. So what is the maximal interval that a woman could have? We, we can tell her, yes, you have to breastfeed at night and so forth and so on, but what would be the greatest that we could possibly hang. I think it would be lovely if we forgot numbers, but we don't. <laughs> we don't, no. The ecological breastfeeding in which you really understand your baby's cues and you feed the baby when it wants to be fed will give you enough frequency. Um, in our study, since everybody's married to numbers, we said there should be no interval during the day of more than three hours and no interval during the night of more than six or four to six. But the fact of the matter is if you're breastfeeding ecologically, if you're responding to your baby's needs, that's full breastfeeding. Okay. Well, those are excellent, excellent answers. Those are all the time. That's all the time that we have today. I would very much like to thank our guest, Dr. Miriam Labak, and I'd like to thank all of you for listening to Born to be Breastfed, and I'd like to invite all of you back next week. I'm Marie Biancuto. I promise I will help you to cut through the myths, clarify the facts about breastfeeding, and next Monday, I will see you same time, same channel. And in the meanwhile, remember that women have breastfed for thousands of years, and you can too. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in this week to Born to be Breastfed. Please join Marie Biancuso next Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. This week, do its best for you and your baby. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. 
The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.